Welcome to Ed Influencers, a podcast from ISTE, the International Society for Technology and Education. I'm Joseph Sal, ISTE's Chief Learning Officer, and I'm excited to bring you interviews with members of the EdTech community who are not just innovating in education, but are influencing nonprofits, education policy, and business, and are shaping how students learn. team up for success with ISTE's professional learning resources, including ISTE U courses, ISTE books, and ISTE certification for educators. These diverse, high-quality resources focus on the most critical topics in ed tech, like computational thinking, digital citizenship, and AI. Help your team meet learning objectives and save when you purchase ISTE professional learning resources in bulk. Get the details on these programs at ISTE.org under the Learn tab. Mandy, thank you for joining us today. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you are the 2018 National Teacher of the Year. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And you work in a really interesting place called the Newcomer Center at the Joel E. Ferris High School in Spokane, Washington, where you teach English to newly arrived immigrant children from all over the world. So we're really excited to talk to you about your work that you do. But first, what does it feel like to be the National Teacher of the Year? It's very surreal, even now. So it's been over a year and uh, my year is actually coming to a close because we named the new 2019 Rodney Robinson. I just have to say his name because he's an incredible human. And so my year is ending, but I still, I still can't believe it. I, I wake up sometimes and I'm like, Mandy, you were named the national teacher of the year. And I'm super perplexed <laughs> by the whole thing because I don't know. You go in and you teach your kids and you do what you believe is best. And then you go home and you are with your family. And now all of a sudden I'm something else. So do others react to you differently now that you are the national teacher of the year? Yes. I mean, my colleagues don't. They're like, whatever, you're Mandy. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Which they should, because that's the truth. At the end of the day, that's the truth. I'm Mandy. I'm same as I was before. But yeah, people come up to me in airports. They come up to me in the grocery store. I've had several people come up to me here. and uh, Here at ISTE, the yes, ISTE conference. Yes, here, here at the ISTE conference and just say, oh my gosh, you're Mandy Manning, right? And I'm like, well, yes. <laughs> I don't really know how to react, but... Well, we are really excited to have you here with us. Let's talk about where you do your work day to day. Tell me about the work you do at the Newcomer Center. Who are the students that you teach there and where do they come from? So my students come from literally all over the world. So we have students from every continent except for Australia and Antarctica for obvious reasons. But even from the islands, we have students from the Marshall Islands, from Chuuk Island, from Micronesia, from Malaysia, from Eastern Europe, from any African nation that you can name. Probably we've at some point had a student from there. Latin America. Yes, Latin America. We've had students from Colombia and um, Central America, Honduras, El Salvador, Middle Guatemala, East. Middle East for sure, Iraq, Syria. You name it, we've likely had a student come from that area of the world. And they are all together in this mm -hmm. in this center? The criteria for being in the Newcomer Center is that you have to have arrived in the nation three months or fewer. Um, and then you have to, on our state language assessment, score a level one, which is just learning English. So they 
usually have limited or interrupted formal education, limited English language education. So when they come in, they spend one semester to a year with me, depending on their need. And my job is, yes, of course, to teach foundational English language, but more importantly, my job is to help them to transition to living and studying in the United States. So they spend an entire school day with me, except for one period a day. They follow a schedule just like my, just like mainstream students would at the right. high school. So they, when the bell rings, they're expected to get up and leave the classroom and do whatever it is kids do during passing periods. And then they come back, but they do spend five periods a day with me. So you talked a little bit about where they came from. Tell us a little bit about the circumstances that they come from. So uh, currently in our nation, there are 71 million people who've been displaced from their homes. And so 71 million people. That's just in the huge, United States alone? Ju- no, just worldwide. Worldwide. So Seven, worldwide. Worldwide, 71, 71 million, million people. So these children are part of those 71 million people. So they have been displaced from their home for a variety of reasons. Uh, usually it's because of severe persecution or fear for their personal safety or things are so, it's so inhospitable in their home country that they've had to leave. So they've experienced a great deal coming to the United States, and it usually takes several years to be able to come over to the United States because the majority of my students are refugees. So they have that status, and so they come through that process, and that process takes forever. Um, I do have students who are sometimes on special visas, and then I also have students, of course, who are undocumented. But we don't generally ask that. We don't care about that because they're children and we love that they're in our community and in our school and we welcome them with open arms. So if it's not too personal, could you maybe tell us the story of one or two students and the world that they're coming from and and the world that they're entering? So I have so many stories because there's the kids have incredible experiences every single year. I don't always get to know every story, especially because my students are newcomers. So they're coming in. They can't necessarily articulate what their experience is. And to be completely honest, I don't usually pry. It's still pretty fresh for them to have to relive any traumas that they've experienced. And so I don't usually push them. But there are stories that I do come to understand because that relationship has gone on for a long time after their experience in the newcomer center. So one of the students who I often talk about is Hussein. And Hussein came to my classroom in 2012 as a refugee from Iraq. And he was very unique in that when he started in my program, he was 20 years old. So normally uh, students come in and they can be any age between 14 and 20 when they enter the newcomer center. But majority of my kids are between about 14 and 16, 17 years old. So he came in at 20 with no transcripts. He had not graduated from high school in Iraq. Um, At that time, he didn't have proof of that. We really had to think about what we were going to be able to do for him. And Luckily, Hussein was extremely outgoing, and so he really wanted to practice his English. And so he did tell us a lot about his story. And his experience in Iraq was, so his father was part of the military in Iraq. He was what we would consider kind of a chief of police. And they were working really closely with the United States military. Well, at that time, that was very suspicious, by some of the Iraqi people, especially those who were on the fringe um, in their belief systems, it was very suspicious. If you were a person who was high up in the military, who was also working with U.S. forces, 
you were often a target. And after several attempts, the terrorists were successful in killing his father. And he happened to be there when his father was killed and he was shot too. And so after that, he was kind of protected within the U.S. Army base. So he spent most of his time on base, sometimes back at his home, but very little outside of that. And during that time, he began to be a barber for the U.S. Army. So once I got that little bit of information, that's where we determined what we were going to do for Hussein. And we got him into vocational program to learn cosmetology. And of course, he couldn't accomplish that in one year, but uh, he was able to get accepted to a program after leaving the Newcomer Center. And he's now a um, successful cosmetologist in Spokane. He cuts my hair and he's just a lovely human. But his story is very indicative of what our students experience. They have these horrible traumas and then they come to the United States essentially just seeking life. So what sort of special or particular learning challenges are created for students who come from those kinds of background that have deep trauma? You know, so, so many of our kids are coming to school with a great deal of trauma. And yeah, my kids have unique trauma because they've had to um, experience a migration from one community to another. They've usually experienced extreme violence or persecution. But the kids here in the United States have extreme trauma as well. It's just of a different type. And the difference between my kids and the experience of trauma here in the United States is that my kids have gone through the absolute worst you could possibly imagine, and they've come out on the other side. So they have this innate hopefulness because they have seen the absolute worst and they've made it through. Um, and so they have this focus and this dedication that a lot of students born in the United States, while they might have experienced trauma, they're still actively experiencing that oftentimes, and they haven't made Come it out through the other yet. side, right. Right. Many people also think that with the newcomers, with uh, new English language learners or English language learners in general, that the biggest barrier is the language. And really it's not. The biggest barrier is the tremendous emotional ups and downs, the culture shock, the um, working through that trauma. And so the best thing that we can do for our students, and this actually reaches any student who has trauma, is just to be open to them, to make sure that you're accepting them who, as they come to you, and that instead of focusing on that trauma, focusing on what assets they're bringing with them. And that's super easy with my students because clearly they have so many assets. They're um, very resourceful, they're focused and dedicated, they're ingenuitive and creative, and many have already learn several languages. So they're already gifted in language learning. So for a a teacher in the U.S. who, you know, may have some immigrant children, but not quite the degree of refugee children that you're dealing with, what are strategies or steps that they can take in their classroom to capitalize on the assets as you described? What would you, what suggestions would you have for them? Well, I think a lot of that actually starts with self-reflection, the educator self-reflecting. And really recognizing we have to know where we come from and our social groups and our experiences that impact how we perceive other people and also how we interact with people across difference. Because when you have students who come in with trauma or who come in from other nations or who have different cultures from yourself, you often will have automatic assumptions. So that's the first step is to recognize where you come from so that you can recognize what's happening, what assumptions you're making, and then set those aside. Because that's the first 
important thing is that you have to be able to be open to every single child that comes into your classroom. Um, And then the second thing is we really have to focus not on the negative things that we hear about kids or the record they're bringing with them, whether that's academic or behavioral. You have to allow a kid to show you who they are because they're not going to necessarily be the same for you that they have been in the past, especially if you're open to who they are and allowing them to show you who they believe themselves to be. And that's the first step, because at that point, then we're not focusing on the deficits. We're focusing on, well, what's this kid actually bringing with them? Because it's very, very hard to build from a deficit. It's a lot easier to build from an asset. And so once you're open to that, it's so easy to see the beauty and the talents and the gifts that every single child is bringing with them. I almost feel like you're you're telling us that we need to be very reflective and careful just to see each other, mm-hmm. to see each other truly. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. So there's more and more discussion in our schools about culturally responsive teaching. I'm wondering if you can just give us a brief definition of cultural responsive teaching and let us know a little bit about the impact that you see it having and you know how, how someone who's just trying to wrap their mind around it might approach it. Being culturally responsive means intentionally putting yourself in situations and seeking experiences that challenge your perceptions and broaden your perspectives, and then using that experience and that knowledge to then be able to uh, more effectively reach across difference for the purpose of like relational success. Right. It's essential to teaching because if you're not intentionally seeking to understand the experiences of your students, then you are not being open to every student. Because we often, as just human beings, we take whatever our life experience is and we just place that on other people. And if they don't fit within that box, we're like, well, what's wrong with them? Instead of thinking about, well, wait a minute, what's wrong with my lens that I'm not being open to the fact that there could be difference and it could be beautiful. And as a matter of fact, I could learn something from it and I could grow as a human being. If we approach every new student with that lens, with that cultural responsive lens, then we're going to number one, be able to see the assets, which I've already talked about, but we're also going to be able to really see what that student needs in order to be a productive, happy adult later, because we recognize, well, this is what happens socially and in society. So what skills do I need to give that student in order to be able to function, but also have pride and bring the beauty that's them with them too? How does that play out in the classroom? Maybe the question is, how would a classroom that's really deeply understands and practices cultural responsive approaches look or feel differently than one that that doesn't? Well, it's one that focuses on not necessarily content, but on connection. We know that content's important. We know that if you're an English language arts teacher, your job is to teach English language arts. If you're a social studies teacher, your job is to teach social studies. But at the end of the day, school isn't about learning every single thing about science or every single thing about math or English or this or that. It's about learning how to be a productive and collaborative human being and being able to interact with people who are different from yourself. And so a classroom that's culturally responsive is going to spend the first few weeks of class really developing those relationships, not only the relationship between student and teacher, but also the relationships between student and student. 
and building that community, not only within the classroom, but out into the larger school community so that everybody feels safe and courageous and confident that they can then take risks with one another. Because it's when we feel confident and believe in ourselves, recognize that we belong, that we're then able to take risks and learn Because if we're automatically like have a filter, some sort of a um, fear that we're going to be judged or that we don't really belong, we're going to shut down and we're not even going to be able to learn the content. It seems like almost a fundamental reversal in the way we think about a classroom. A lot of the way we think about school is that there's content to be learned and we create relationships so we can learn the content. But it almost sounds to me like you're saying there's relationships to be learned and you know, the content provides a setting for us to grow them. Yeah. The content is just the vehicle. Because if you think about it, think about your own experience as an, as a student, what do you remember about school? Do you remember? So think about your favorite educator, the person that you connected with the best. Do you remember everything that person taught you? Or do you remember how that person made you feel? Clearly how they made me feel. Exactly. And I think that's, we have to reassess how we're thinking about school. What is the actual purpose of school? Is it to learn A, B, C, one, two, three, or is it to learn how to be a learner? And once we can really answer that question, we can then accomplish a whole lot more. We'll be more connected as community, we'll be safer, we'll have better relationships, and we'll have critical thinking, we'll have innovative ideas, because we'll all be supporting one another, and we'll have that relationship to be able to grow as a society, both intellectually and socially. So I know that you've talked about the topic of hope and have pointed out that it's actually on a downward trend for U.S. students. That sounds really deeply concerning to me. I'd like to know from your point of view what you think may be causing that trend and what impact you feel like it's having on our students? Yeah, so Gallup does a poll every single year that assesses a student's hope, level of hopefulness. And they look at several different factors, but one is hopefulness, one is feeling stuck, and one is feeling discouraged. And we're seeing a downward trend. The percentage of students feeling hopeful is decreasing every single year by at least a few percentage points. Every single year. Every single year. And then stuck is increasing and then just downright discouraged is increasing as well. Oh my goodness. And so that definitely has a huge impact. But I think it's important that we look at what that actually means. Because the the word hope is so nebulous, right? It's not really focused on any one thing. It's just this big general, I just don't feel hopeful. But what it's really looking at is powerlessness and lack of agency. So what we're seeing is kids feeling like they don't have power over their own life. And they're not seeing a lot of opportunity as they're moving forward. So that means that we have to look at the whole picture of our nation and the world in general. So we're seeing a higher level of poverty. We're seeing a lot of students in situations where they're homeless. We're seeing increased disconnection with parents. Um, We're seeing a lot more kids who are having a parent incarcerated. And even the kids who are in more affluent situations, we're seeing a high level of opioid use within those families. So there's a lot of things that are making kids feel like, I don't know where I'm going to go in the future. I'm not seeing a whole lot of opportunity. I'm seeing a lot of debt. 
possibly. I'm seeing limited wages. Uh, Not very many people are able to afford housing. I mean, that's like some serious sadness. Right. So if you think about it in those huge terms, you have to ask yourself, if you're a student and you're going to school, they're kind of asking themselves, what's the point? Right. If there's nothing to look forward to, what's the point? And that is a problem because... That actually is the whole point. If we focus in school, if we grow as human beings, if we make connections and collaborate and learn how to be these successful, productive adults, then that's the hope because then our society gets better and better and then there is opportunity. But we have to focus on ensuring that kids know they have a voice and how to use that voice in order to advocate for themselves and for their friends. And we are seeing that. So I think that there you're, is... You're seeing an increase in that? We are seeing... We're seeing it. Okay. I don't know you're if You're seen as, a, as a phenomenon... Yes. ...that has the potential... Right. ...to counterbalance. Yes. The kids leading the way on climate change. Uh, the kids focused on gun control here in, in our nation. Those are kids who have been empowered and have agency. And so we know it's possible. And we know that kids are seeing it. So now's the time that we capitalize it and make it a central piece of our education because we can't continue in this downward trend. We have to see hope reemerging. That makes me very reflective about our digital culture. I know that that can be a factor in eroding hope for some students. Yet I also wonder if there are ways the very same tools and platforms and experiences could be recruited to build hope. Mm-hmm. Any any thoughts on that? I think that it very much can be utilized to build hope. But I think we have to be intentional about how we use it in our school system. Because right now, if you look in, in the traditional school system, how we utilize technology right now, it's very basic. We still use it for word processing. We still use it for creating presentations. And sometimes we have fancy ones, but it's still at the end of the day, we're just using it to make fancy presentations and then research. And that's traditional. I'm not saying that there aren't people out there doing really incredible things because they are. I know this. But on the balance. But on the balance and ensuring that we're thinking about not how technology fits within our box that we already believe exists, but rather how technology changes our box. Because when we leave it up to kids to use technology on their own, which is kind of what we're doing right now, we see this imbalance of how kids are using it. Some kids recognize that it can be this incredible voice, like the Parkland kids. Like they've used social media so incredibly well. And those are the kids who were victims of the school shooting. Yes. The ones who are advocating for gun control and all of that. Right. right? And to unpack that a little bit, they use the, the digital tools available to them to get their voice out, to start a national movement, Mm -hmm. and ultimately to create enough of a groundswell to get some legislation passed in their state. Yes. And they have been connecting cross borders across the world. We see that movement grow, right? But they did that on their own. And we didn't necessarily teach them how to do that. But then you see other kids who are using technology in very destructive ways. And I mean, even for me, when I go on to any kind of social media platform, it's so easy to get into this spiral of like negativity because there's just so many headlines that are so negative and it can make you really feel like, well, what's the point? 
And if we don't start to help kids to navigate that and to help them think about how they can use technology to make connections, really positive connections with one another and grow their world and their perspectives, we have to be very intentional in helping them to understand how to do that. Otherwise, it becomes this really small world in this vast network where it's just the same bad news over and over and over and over. So in your own classroom, how have you used technology to build hope? So I actually purposely don't use technology in my classroom. And not because I don't believe that it's a good thing. My kids do have a computer applications class outside of of the newcomer center. That's their one period outside of the class. And we connect and we create projects and do all of the normal things. But at the end of the day, it's really, really important that my kids interact face-to-face use the language in real time, build connections with other students who were born in the United States and use English as it's used in our community and that they really experience being together. And so that's where my focus is. So I've seen a website that you've contributed to with your students. Yes. And that seemed to be uh, focused on maybe sharing some of their stories. This was before I was not in the classroom. So I haven't been in my classroom for about a year and a half. Okay. And I'm excited to go back. But yeah, I started a class blog because that's one thing. So my students, they need real-time interaction and connection. Right. But the greater community needs exposure to other cultures, especially the cultures that are within their own community. Right. And so that was our goal when we created our class blog. It was about kids were going to create content that was going to share their stories, but very positive. We weren't going to get into the trauma of their journey over to the United States, but it was more about, look at this beautiful place that exists in my community. And you should know about it because I care about it and I love it and I want to share it with you. And so it's just an opportunity to broaden the world and open the world for other people and to recognize that, hey, we have this really incredible humans in our community that we can learn so much from. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you obviously have very precious time in your classroom and a lot of relational work to do. And a lot of language learning to do. It makes sense that you protect that time. But it's also interesting to me that you can still use technology to help them connect with their community in a way that might ease their life a little bit when they're not in school. Yeah, because it helps everybody. This is what we're seeing a lot right now in our society is we're seeing insulated communities that don't recognize that there are beautiful people outside of that community. And actually it's turned into a lot of fear. And that fear then has created animosity, which then leads to hate. Uh, And we're seeing a lot of that right now, especially in the United States. I think we've always seen it, but it's coming out, right? And so the more that we can expose people to different cultures and different communities that are right here, one town over. Or even that, one neighborhood over. Right, right. The more that we can humanize one another and, and help people to recognize that every single human being has value and that we can learn from each other. How do you restore a person's sense of hope? How do you build that back up? Well, you have to help them to be time travelers. Um, And when I say that, what I mean is they have to be able to see themselves in the future because obviously we don't have real time machines. I wish we did. (laughs) It's a a big disappointment to me too. We can change some things, make sure the future's great, but we don't actually have that. But we need to help our kids to be able to see themselves in the future living happy lives. And we do this like totally in a very warped way 
way because we always equate happiness with comfort and the two are not related. And as a matter of fact, the more you search for comfort and efficiency and money and those things, the less happy you are. Happiness comes from experience and connections with other human beings. And so we have to ensure that kids can see themselves in the future as happy, productive adults that are contributing to their community and having positive relationships with their neighbors, because then that's where hope lies. As long as we can see that tomorrow I'm going to be okay and the next day I'm going to be okay, then I'm going to keep moving forward. So speaking of hope, I imagine you have some tough days doing this work, many more tough days than I'm sure I have doing my work. What makes you persist in the face of the really difficult things that you see people are going through and doing to each other? How do you retain your own sense of hope? Well, this year and a half away from my classroom has really clarified all of that for me. Because if you'd asked me that a year and a half ago, I would have said, well, I don't really know. I mean, I just am hopeful. <laughs> um, but now, because I've been in a situation where I haven't had access to kids every day, I've been spending my time traveling from community to community, speaking in front of huge groups of people or connecting with decision makers or advocacy groups, or um, I have been visiting schools. That actually has less hope because you're constantly confronted with the problems with our education system. Whereas every day that I'm in the classroom, I'm surrounded by kids and kids they're young. They have their whole life ahead of them and they do really silly things. And they sometimes have these huge dreams and sometimes they're questioning their dreams and sometimes they don't believe in themselves. And sometimes they just really believe in themselves so much that you're like, what the heck? <laughs> um, um, and that's hope because that's our future. Those are human beings that are moving forward in life, even if they've had a stumble or they've had to overcome an obstacle or a barrier, especially my kids. Oh my gosh. My kids have been through the absolute worst and here they are showing up to school every single day. Even just that, recognizing that kids are going through so much and they're coming to school. That's incredible. So it's hope is built into every single day of a teacher's life. And so it's easy when I'm in front of kids to feel hopeful because they're there. The Ed Influencers Podcast is brought to you by ISTE, the International Society for Technology and Education. Special thanks to Emily Morris, Trevor Wilson-Stout, Linda Abanya, Caitlin McLemore, and Jisoo San for supporting the podcast development and production. Reaching your district's goals is streamlined with ISTE's professional learning resources. With ISTE U, ISTE Books, and ISTE Certification for Educators, your team gets top-notch PD on critical ed tech topics like the learning sciences, open educational resources, and future-ready librarianship. Achieve your district's goals and save when you purchase ISTE Professional Learning Resources in bulk. Get the details on these programs at ISTE.org under the Learn tab.